You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Saad Ahmed. So, uh, Saad's kind of like taking a trip uh, into time. And come actually, he's come forward into time because normally he presents on Tuesday. Correct. <laughs> so how are we doing, Saad? Assalamualaikum. Alhamdulillah, so far so good, and it's really nice to first of all being able to present with you today. Really? Because normally <laughs> I just saw you just on the WhatsApp name to me, right? Okay. But today I can put a face to it. It's Alhamdulillah, right? By the grace okay. of God, I'm oh. able to yeah, and, put and, a face now. And similarly, right? Because uh, yeah, we're, we're we're very lucky. We're blessed here on the Voice of Islam, especially the Drive Time Show, that we have uh, a multitude. Right, a multitude of uh, imams and such like uh, presenters, yeah, who kind of mix it up. And uh, you know, another thing that we are blessed with actually is the uh, the, the topics that we actually uh, address. Yes. And uh, what what have you got actually got on the on the agenda today? So today, in the first hour, we were speaking about housing in the, in the UK to buy or to rent, mm-hmm. and we are asking a uh, on our stories, uh, Instagram story. Oh yeah. Currently, how are you living in your home? Mm-hmm. So there are three questions, um, t- three answers to this. One mm-hmm. is, I, do you own the house, or do you mortgage the house, or pay rent to it? So mm-hmm. stay with us when while we speak about this uh, important issue. Mm-hmm. And in the second hour, we spoke uh, speaking about fostering. Okay. But, and that's also a quite key, mm-hmm. uh, important um, topic in in our society nowadays. What yeah. is fostering? How does fostering work? Mm-hmm. Or does even Islam permit fostering? fostering? Yeah. So as, uh, obviously, Voice of Islam will be having an um, aspect of um, the religion into it mm-hmm. and then also have the worldly side, how it works and everything. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we have Talib Man with us today, <laughs> an expert, um, expert on housing in the UK and also uh, on fostering, let's say, well, hopefully. I mean, the only way I would say uh, <laughs> to, to qualify that statement from my co-presenter uh, being an expert is that I live in a house. Oh, yes. So, yeah, I've got experience of that, yeah. But, yeah, I've got a limited experience in residential lettings um, and the uh, that arena. But without uh, more of ado, let's let's jump into it. Because, you know, you, housing in the UK, and it is, it is a big question to buy or to rent. Um, and I suppose the perennial question is, or, you know, in the back of the, uh, people's minds, and we were just actually talking about this uh, before the show started, was that... Yeah, you know, a lot of people actually think that actually, why should I be paying money for rent, right? Yes, isn't it just wasted money? Why don't I instead uh, get a mortgage, buy a house through that mortgage, and at least over a period of time, maybe you know, twenty-five years, uh, usually is the uh, the the term of a mortgage, I'll end up owning that house. I'll have that asset, right? But um, I think I was saying to you before, Sadia, that historically in Europe, the idea of owning your house isn't so entrenched in one of the first, I suppose, um, choices that you make as as an adult, right? Yes. But whilst in the UK, uh, that's saying, you know, one man's home is his castle, right, Um, seems to permeate and has done since, I suppose, the 80s. 
um, when Margaret Thatcher made it possible to actually own your own house if you were in a council, council dwelling. Oh, yes, but, you, but you're a bit younger than that, so <laughs> oh, you're yeah, alone. I'm, I'm a 90s kid. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. uh, you know, very good, interesting um, thing you said about Europe, because I was born in Germany myself, mm-hmm. and parents lived there for a very long time. This thought never came in our minds, okay, mm-hmm. to buy a house. Yeah, to own your house. To own a house. But now, since I've moved to the UK, now it has crept in our minds, okay, do you should you own a house at this time? But obviously because of the mortgage rates right mm-hmm. now. The question is really difficult to answer at this point, mm. and most people will say no. Right, right now is not the best time to buy a house. Well, you see, it's not exactly, um, yeah, yeah. What they say about houses and pets, right? It's not, it's not, not just for Christmas, right? Yes, it's, it's for a lifetime. Correct. Uh, and the mortgage uh, terms are usually, well, I suppose. Uh, the one that hits my mind is about 25 years, right? So you're in your house after 25 years. Now, you know, how is that? And, and you know, you've made, you've actually kind of illustrated the point that I was saying earlier on, that, yes. you know, you've come from Germany and it never really entered you or your parents' mind to actually own that house. Own the house. So if you think over a period of time, 25 years, right, you're paying, uh, let's say, for a £250,000 mortgage, uh, your interest payments are around about, if you're on a repayment, maybe about a thousand, three thousand, four, um, let's say a thousand five hundred, right? Yes. A month. Multiply that by 12 to give you your annual uh, mortgage payments. Multiply that by 25. So that's a massive amount of capital that you've. Invested, into. invested into your house, Correct. and ultimately, yes, you're going to get your house after 25 years. But can you imagine what you could have been doing with that capital? Yes, but I think it's, um, one thing which is interesting: if you're paying, well, let's say, you're paying rent also, and right now in this climate in Lo- in London, let's say about fifteen, sixteen hundred pound for a two or three bedroom house, or mm-hmm. even more now, uh, because the, the, the rent has skyrocketed. If someone was paying fifteen hundred pound, isn't it cheaper? To, but if you know your capital is saved at one point. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you mentioned before, that uh, it's dead money, right? Right. But after fifteen hundred pound is gone, let's say if you're living in the same country mm-hmm. for twenty five years in the same house for twenty five years and you're paying rent, isn't it better to have the house for yourself? Well, see, this is this is this is the argument, right? Yes. You arrive in one camp or the other. Um, but you know, coming back to the the actual topic, because we're, we're being waylaid, although we are <laughs> talking about the topic, right? So it is you know a decision between renting and buying a home, and you know it is that significant financial choice. I mean, each option has its advantages and drawbacks, and we'll we'll be delving sure. into that later on in the in the in the in the segment. Now, depending on factors like financial stability, long-term plans, uh, personal preference, right, and market conditions. Now, in the Quran, uh, in chapter two, verse two hundred and fifty-five, it says, "O ye who believe, spend out of what we have bestowed upon you, uh, before the day comes wherein there shall be no buying." and selling, nor friendship, nor intercession. And it is those who disbelieve that do wrong to themselves. I mean, you're the imam here. Yes. You're the guy who knows. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, when we, when we explore, you know, what is you know, Allah Ta'ala telling us regarding that then? Yes, you know, this, this verse is regarding a day of day of judgment. Mm-hmm. So when a day comes that you you're unable to buy or sell, or no friendship will come in for help at that time. So just before before that time, you have all you you can buy, you can sell, you have your friendships. But 
and this this is uh, at a talk, talking time um, where the judgment happens, and and then and it is those who disbelieve do the wrong to themselves. So mm-hmm. the disbelievers, then they're talking about disbelievers who do wrong to themselves. So it's more about that um, hereafter uh, at that time of the day mm-hmm. of judgment and before and uh, or for you. Um, how how do you how do you put it? Um, it's about the right. day of judgment in simple terms right yes. and basically the finality of that day of judgment right Correct. because you know here um you know we're all we're all muslims we're all practicing muslims and you know it's to believe that actually when we're talking about say this 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 topic and in essence right we're talking about house bricks your mortgage and the material side of life effectively right correct and you know what's what's the average age now 80 80 is not a bad score yes. right so 80 years but then that's versus eternal life right correct so it's merely a blink in your actual full existence yes. you know as as a you know whatever it is afterwards right after your life on earth so it's you know it's there to remind us that actually you know, if we do believe, uh, or you know, if we believe that there is a day of judgment, the uh, you know you're going to be judged on that day by uh, God Almighty, then you know we have to do unto ourselves or unto Him, right? A worship, B do good works, really, Correct. right? So not to um, what's the word I'm looking for, but just to live a good life, right? And in terms of, I just understand that actually this life that we're living currently is transitory. Yes. Yeah. In, interesting, you know. Um, also, um, regarding you know renting a house in the UK, you know, one thing which I I find is good about renting is is the fl- uh, being able to move around. Mm-hmm. But um, what happens is, let's say you live in London, next day you have a job, and let's say in Huddersfield. You can move up there, mm-hmm. and but while if you own a house, you 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 have you're stuck, or you have to find a job around where you live. Mm-hmm. That's one a good point mm-hmm. about renting, but because I'm like more pro buying, right? Because I always think if you're paying rent to something, mm-hmm. you you should rather have that house. Yourself. But that's 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 what I'm trying to get to. That's your social or what society over here has led us to believe is the correct yes. modus operandi, right, for living in the UK. I mean, if we look at renting a house in the UK, right, and our renting offers a lot of short-term financial benefits. Uh, it requires lower upfront costs uh, compared to buying, uh, which allows those individuals who choose to rent to save on a substantial uh, down payment. You know, the deposit for the house is 25% nowadays wow. uh, and associated expenses. Now, additionally, renters are not typically responsible for major maintenance unless they knock a hole in the wall. Yes. I've got that on inventories uh, <laughs> or repairs, alleviating financial burdens. Uh, renting also provides flexibility and mobility, uh, which you're pointing out to, yeah? enabling individuals to easily relocate due to job changes uh, or personal preferences. Now, obviously, well, this... Um, benefit of being mobile, right? Can you imagine those ideas? Yeah? Even if uh, we were talking pre-Brexit, yes. Then you know what? You could. You're not really tethered to any place. No. In the whole of Europe, you can right? just go anywhere you want. Exactly. To. So, like, for example, we came from Germany over here exactly. because we were renting. We had nothing to worry about. Okay, we have to sell the house, do mm-hmm. this and do that. Yeah. Just move over here. 
But so, um, so that that is that you know, there's a lot of things where we we talk about a cost benefit um, analysis, right? Yes. And you look at yourself like, right, okay, and, uh, and there's so many factors, so many variables in there as well. It's your age, you know, if you're more like you on the younger scale, you're mo- more mobile. You want to kind of like travel, right? You don't want to be tethered to one spot. Yes, true. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. But whereas, say for instance, you're like me in my kind of latter years or kind still of like, actually, not still young, <laughs> I would say, yeah, kind of like halfway through my innings, 55 is not bad, right, towards a century. But you, well, I'm more settled, I've got kids. Um, then you have a different type of perspective, really, uh, yes. on A, your housing. Right. Yes. But uh, that's a really good kind of like I thought. I thought Simon was <laughs> kind of giving me a Hawaiian "How are you doing?" kind of thing. But we've actually got our first guest right uh, regarding this topic. So we've got Zia Ahmed online now. Zia works uh, or has worked in property for over twenty years through sales developments, uh, focusing more heavily on the letting uh, market in London. He also runs his own agency in Hackney. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Zia. How are you doing today? Good to good to join you guys. Uh, yeah. I'm doing very very well. Thank you. Right. Okay. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Drive Time Show. So we're talking about you know that 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 choice regarding you know housing you know to rent or to buy. Okay. What are the key factors uh, individuals should consider when deciding renting or buying <laughs> a property in the current UK housing market? And I'm sure. Yeah, you're going to have loads of listeners on tenderhooks now waiting for this answer. Well, it, it's quite, um, quite, quite an exhaustive answer. As such. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll try and break it down to a few points. I mean, the key factor always, essentially, whether you are renting or you're buying, is affordability. Right. Um, and you've always got to make sure that whatever um, you go into and, and whatever um, you, you sort of take on yourself, it is a commitment that you can actually fulfill. So it's, affordability is very, very important. The second thing I think that is sort of banded around very much in the media and, and, and sort of pushed around is always location, 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 where you want to be. And that would be determined by where you work, for example, um, your family considerations, personal preferences. So there's a lot of other factors involved. And sometimes it's a case that you might look at an area where you can't afford to buy, but conversely, you can afford to rent. And that might be part of your consideration. I mean, as, as you guys have been speaking about as well, that the age of the individual sometimes you know, plays into the fact that you need to move around. That yes. might be work-related, as we say. And you know, if, if, if they need to sort of be in a, in a place for a short period of time, maybe six months or a year or something, then in those circumstances, renting you know, can be a, a good idea. Um, but on top of that as well, sometimes it's a good way to sort of try out an area as well. You might want to sort of rent in a in a new location mm-hmm. where you think it might sort of serve your purpose, sort of traveling to work, meeting with your relatives, your, your family, your friends, um, traveling to the mosque, for example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all of these kind of things. Yeah, school, to, uh, school catchment equation. areas. Very much so, very much yeah. so. As I say, with work, uh, with, with family considerations, schooling is, is a massive, massive mm-hmm. Uh, decision-making point. Yes, you know, as um, with um, the rising costs of properties in, in today's market, many potential buyers are finding it really difficult to enter the housing or the buying market. Uh, so, what would you um, advise be to um, aspiring home house owners um, facing this challenge? Well, 
Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, just as an example on the rental side of things in particular, um, rents have shot up massively. Correct. And, and, you know, some reports as 40%, 50%, 60%, um, and even more. But, you know, this is also happening at the moment because there are partly, because less people are able to buy at the moment. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons um, that you're finding that there's more people looking to rent. And obviously coming off the back of the pandemic and, and finding that we've had a lower amount of house building. I think that the government at the moment on average is building around 10,000 new homes a year where the target mm -hmm. is around 300,000. We're having a massive shortfall across the whole country. So that, that's playing into it. In answer to your questions about what people can do, the key thing would be to try and cut expenses. And rent tends to be one of your biggest expenses. So if it's something that you know you can live in a one-bedroom rather than a two-bedroom or a two-bedroom rather than a three-bedroom whilst you're looking to save yes. and put together a deposit, then that is a better way um, mm. to look at, look at that. Um, essentially, cut back on non-essential things because you have to make some kind of sacrifices along the way if you're looking to try to achieve mm. home ownership. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes people even look to sort of live at home to try and save costs, you know, live with friends and family um, to try and sort of save as much as they possibly can. Yes. Also try and be very, very realistic with your expectation and budget. Yes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you need to sort of look at comes back to affordability more than anything else. Correct. And I think it's very, very important to try and stick within uh, a, a predefined budget. And mm -hmm. you have to be very, very um, calculated about that so that you're not um, progressing beyond your means. Effectively, what Islam teaches us, I guess. Mm. Yes. But the thing is there, right? You know, you, you made the mention that housing stock is down because the government's predicted, or, well, promising to at least build 10,000 new homes. Why then, right, in, in that case, it would be uh, the situation that not only is housing stock going down, but they're making, say, for instance, uh, the job of residential landlords even harder because, you know, a lot of the tax breaks that residential landlords have had over the years, say, for instance, uh, mortgage tax relief, that's been taken away. Um, so it's not, you know, when we were in the good war, well, the better times, let's say, right, uh, of the 90s, where you, if, if, you know, investment or buy-to-let mortgage to buy a uh, kind of like a, um, a second ha home uh, to let out as an investment was quite an attractive thing, but it's not now. Yeah, very true. I mean, um, it, it is a little bit baffling, I think, certainly from, from this side of the fence mm. as to why the government's sort of playing that. I mean, there are, um, there are reasons behind what, what at least we, we think the, the government is trying to do. It, it tends to be more of a vote winner to try and sort of go after the landlord to be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as we said, around 10,000 homes is what they're building. 300,000 is their target, but they're getting nowhere near that mm. at the moment. But they've introduced the second um, property stamp duty land tax. Mm. So that's a further 3% uh, that goes on top of what you pay for your original purchase. Section 24 um, on buy-to-let landlords, if you touched on both up. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult now to try and offset your expenses against that rental, and therefore yeah. it makes less uh, sense to be a landlord. Exactly. And uh, there isn't enough evidence at the moment that a lot of landlords are coming out of the market, partly because I think as prices are beginning to drop, mm. landlords don't necessarily want to be selling um, at a loss or you know, for, for less than what they bought for, certainly in the last few years. 
But I think in the long term, certainly from where we stand at the moment, less and less landlords um, are going to look to try and sort of, you know, enter the market in that sense. Mm. I mean, in that, in, in with that in mind, I mean, how does the current, you know, if you're a first-time buyer um, in this market currently with, you know, uh, base rates of 5%, uh, so you're getting a mortgage um, maybe around about, at best, 65 right? Uh, 65 to 7%. So, you know, if you're a first-time buyer, you know, how does that compare in line with previous years, let's say, when the base rate was zero? I mean, is it easier well, or harder to, uh, you know, to, to, to enter that market now? It's, it's certainly more difficult the higher the interest rate is because that mm. entry point becomes, you know, very, very difficult. But I, I think it needs to be said that it, it's never really easy um, <laughs> yeah, too with right. regards to any, any first-time buyer mm. entering the market. It's, it's the largest purchase you're going to make, a very, very daunting experience. And it's it's where you need your sort of friends and family around you sometimes to to try and sort of assist you um, over that period. But yeah, the, it's, the, um, the it's, bank it's of mum and dad. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and, and it's been more and more prevalent uh, over the, over the last five to ten years in particular. Mm. But it's always difficult to get on the ladder, um, and income multiples now required for for mortgages um, are far more higher than than they've been in the past. If you just look at this sort of average sale. But I mean, what, what I'm seeing at the moment is that where certain landlords, for example, are trying to achieve a certain price if they were to sell, if you compare that to a first-time buyer jumping in and, and putting down maybe 20% uh, deposit, in some cases, not every case, but some cases, it actually works out cheaper to rent the property mm-hmm. than to even have to cover the interest on the mortgage, let alone the full repayment of it. Mm. So... You know, that, that's what's sort of holding back a lot of first-time buyers at the moment, thinking even in the short term that, well, we're, we're going to sort of jump in and, and take on a large commitment here, but it would actually be cheaper for us to rent that. So I think it's kind of sort of pushing the the the, the purchase further down the line a little bit. Mm-hmm. So how does um, the inflation impact, you know, the interest rates on loans and mortgages and what should um, borrowers consider while they plan for a long, uh, long-term loan? Well, it always comes back to affordability and, mm-hmm. you know, keeping payments manageable. But it, it, this is something that um, a mortgage broker, for example, would be very, very helpful in, in trying to sort of work out what you can afford, what you could buy um and and how you can manage your payments i mean obviously people sometimes try to extend those loans and and lenders allow much longer loans now where we've moved from 25 to 30 years 35 even 40 years um to be able to repay those loans down um and that helps sort of keep the payments a lot lower even though it can cost you a lot more in the in the long run um but generally uh, inflation can help reduce the value of the money Mm -hmm. And if you've got a fixed-term debt, it will actually help reduce the value of your debt in the long run. Mm-hmm. But it's it's those initial years that it's very, very difficult, as I say, daunting for a, certainly a first-time buyer to be able to sort of get on the ladder. And then essentially the larger the deposit you have, the greater the chance you have to be able to get your mortgage, get your dream home, and the more affordable those payments will be. Mm. But the thing is here, right, regarding that, and I totally agree, inflation over time, um, I mean, you know, the, the easiest way I, I picture inflation is like, well, I've got £10 in my hand. What can I buy with £10 today as opposed to maybe five years ago? And yes. normally it's less, really. Correct. 
And so over time, it, it does. I mean, if you have debt over time, it just decreases the impact of that debt. But aren't we in some kind of really extraordinary times currently here in the UK? Because you should, well, previous um, interest rates have been more, I would say, you know, you have demand pull, cost push. So demand pull inflation uh, based up based upon yeah you know the housing market people buying a lot of houses then hence inflation is going up uh, consumer spending but currently where I th- I personally think that we're in a situation whereby demand pull versus cost push you don't even know which one it is right as the factor which is really pushing inflation because we've got increased energy costs whether it be your utilities or gas oil petrol. Uh, you and so my point being that th- these are actually uh, different factors of which the Bank of England really don't have a handle on because they've only got the one tool to address it, which is interest rates. Um, so going back to your point, is 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 it still the same as say, for instance, maybe ten years ago, right? For a prospective buyer to think, well, actually. Do, and and I think you made the point earlier on in the piece that it's it's a hard decision to jump into the housing market regardless because it is it's a big lump of money and it's getting ever bigger <laughs> as your deposit gets bigger. Um, so I think what I'm trying to ask you is that yeah, regardless, how do we um, rate now given these circumstances that we, we're facing in the economy um, versus maybe even yeah, just only five years ago. Well, if we take it back, when you, you mentioned 10 years ago previously, and, right. and if you look at it in the sense of the, the time soon after the financial crash, I mean, I know it's about sort of 10 to 15 years ago now, mm-hmm. but at that point, interest rates started to plummet quite fast. Yeah. And the fact that they started coming down, there was an issue with liquidity with the banks, mm-hmm. but the, the fact that rates were coming down actually helped affordability for quite a lot of people. And yeah. I know they tried to sort of go on variable rates at the time. Mm-hmm. What I find difficult at the moment for any kind of buyer, really, is that inflation is is underlying through food, Mm -hmm. through clothing costs, through energy, as you talk about your utilities, and really sort of raising interest rates gradually over at that time um, really sort of feels like you're kicking somebody when they're down. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. It's, it, it's, it's not really helping individuals, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't think how, I don't see how that would help the economy. I think there would have been far better to raise the rates to um, a generic point quite quickly and say, right, that's it. We've, we've put it there. That's mm-hmm. the only tool we have. So we've moved it quite quickly. And we're just now going to wait for inflation to, to slowly come down. But I think that point may have been reached sooner and lower than where we are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the uncertainty that really sort of kills everything because yeah. businesses don't want to get involved and therefore there's less trade happening with with nations and if there's less trade happening, there's less money coming in mm-hmm. and if there's less money coming in, then people generally will be poorer. So mm. I think this is really um, a far more complicated problem that I think the government and the, and the Bank of England have found themselves in now and I, I think they're only hoping that inflation continues to to fall it, it's shown that it, it's doing so mm-hmm. but at such a slow rate i i don't see that sort of helping 
um, mm. individuals out there at yeah, all. Especially in the housing market currently. Well, Zia, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having Thank me. Thank you. Take care. O two O eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, yeah, join in the conversation if you are a renter, buyer, or yeah, thinking about it. Yeah, because it is a big decision, isn't yes. it? You know, it's quite daunting as for some people. I, I know recently, what a couple of my cousins just went into the buying route mm-hmm. and they got a couple of houses um, um down in the Hampshires now, and it was a really difficult process because I remember them being stressed out but mm-hmm. he's a couple of years older than me and it's like bro I don't know what to do <laughs> I actually because it was the very first time you don't yeah. know it's, 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 it's a, a it's no man's land you, yeah exactly I mean it's like, the thing is it's not exactly something you do multiple times yes. so you don't really know what the you know what the protocol and, is and right? one thing uh, it's a sad reality there are people out there who who try or who are trying to scam you because it's it's a mm-hmm. lucrative business there. Yeah. So he's like, I don't know who should I trust or who mm-hmm. is a, a actually a good broker which I can go to. Mm-hmm. Then obviously all the time trials and errors and asking other people who have gone that route mm-hmm. and then from there he was able to get something because now he has a now now he has a Lambda house now and mm-hmm. in the Hampshires. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's 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 a learning curve and now he, he has um now become a mortgage broker himself. Oh okay. Yeah. So he, he's done a couple <laughs> so of <laughs> he he didn't find the experience of getting his own mortgage so detrimental. In fact, he found it quite a positive effect. Oh, yes. right, that he became one. <laughs> he became one now, and he has. I've done one or one or two um, people's houses and helped them out, helped them out just mm-hmm. as a friend. Now he's trying to charge fees for it now. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, one thing. Like uh, first, for example, career. I'm myself. Uh, my father's a renter. I live with my parents, mm-hmm. and uh, it's. Obviously, inflation now, where we mm. started paying of a thousand or something pound um, mm-hmm. when we moved here, now it has gone up to fifteen or sixteen hundred pound, mm. and it, it's it's but a massive see, jump. That's 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 I think something I was trying to reach with Zia there, our previous guest. That we find ourselves, I think, in the current housing market in the UK in a yes. very, I would say, unique situation, right? Because previously, you would say, right, okay, um, say. You know, 10 years ago, we, we, let's use that benchmark. 10 years ago, rents were affordable. Oh, they were right? affordable, yes. Um, and even you to be a buy to let, if you were to have like one extra property um, apart from the one that you're living in, mm-hmm. okay, uh, and buy as an investment and rent it out, uh, the rent would offset the buy to let mortgage. You'd get a couple of hundred quid maybe extra, but ultimately you've got a, you've got a property there. Uh, as part of your investment mm-hmm. uh, portfolio, so things are pretty rosy uh, in terms of the buying as a as your um, investment market or as a renter. Yes, right. But currently, you've got the complete reverse. Ten down, ten it's years both. down the line, it's not good to rent because to buy. I think Zia was like saying I didn't even think it was that high. Up to sixty percent increases in rent. I mean. How can that be affordable now, right? Definitely. Yeah, given that you know the government's not going to. If you're a public employee, right, you're working for the NHS or whatever, they're not even considering giving anything more than seven percent. Okay, mm-hmm. so how? And so, so that's just the renting element of the market. And then on the flip side, you've got you know those who are trying to enter into 
uh, house you know, into the housing market with their first buys. Correct. It's hard as well. Right? Even even like, as I mentioned before, about uh, the target is three hundred thousand. They're producing ten thousand um, a year or something, yeah. and it's a competition now for for the renters. Mm-hmm. So if if a one single, let's say my father wants to go to another property, mm-hmm. he is competing with other people also who are bidding on that same property. Let's say that where where there used to be like two two or three people, that ten or fifteen people now on one property, mm-hmm. and what happens is those who come together let's say if there's it's a, a group of friends from buying to uh, trying to rent a property mm. they'll be able to scoop up the, the extra 200 pound because it's mm-hmm. it's going to be let's say it's for friend for 400 pound uh, 200 mm-hmm. pound is 50 pound extra they have to pay they that's still manageable mm. but for a single working um um um, um so a, a member mm-hmm. for for him to scoop up another 200 pound that's going to be difficult yeah, yeah. so there are two streams going around there's mm. a there's a I wouldn't say a um, bidding war, but it, it's, no, but it's, it's, it's always, like that. It's always been that case, right? Yes. Um, I mean, we here in London live in a bit of a bubble anyway, right? There's only so many homes and, you know, th- there is that, um, what I say, insulation, right? We're insulated from major shocks to the housing market, right? But if you were to go outside of London, you're still seeing, I think, the same, although there's a time lag, Yes, issue. Things happen quicker in the in in London, and they it's it's like chucking a stone. I'll give you an analogy, right? It's like chucking a pebble into the middle of a pond. So you've got to get those ripples, but eventually, and if you're on the shoreline, they will get to you, right? Yes. But they won't get to you straight away. So if you're say for instance up north in Sheffield, yeah, you're not going to see those massive price rises or price uh, decreases, and Conversely, you're not going to see those massive um, rises in rent or decreases in rent, but you will see them eventually. And so what I'm trying to say is that in the housing market currently, we have a really, I I think it's just a perfect storm of rubbish variables happening out there, unfortunately. Yes, you know, Talib, you're one of the, in my opinion, you're you're a great expert. I don't even know that it's 25% now, the mortgage rate. Uh, in my opinion, it was like 10%. I think that used to be no down way. payment or something. No, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, Zia said 20, yes. but I think, um, say for instance, you're buying a property as a, uh, a second property, uh, loan to value ratio is 25%. Wow. So say, you know, for ease of you know reference 100 grand property which 25,000 right so it's quite an easy rule of thumb so you know moving on yes what are some of the advantages right of renting obviously you know that one one which we started off with was flexibility you being able to renting allows you know individuals to easily relocate um, um, based on the needs or changes of circumstances so if you find a new job or you're trying to move closer to your family Mm -hmm. or move to a better location where housing or the schooling is better if you're renting that's easier for you to do and while if you're buying a house or you purchase a house you, you you're stuck in that area for x amount of time till you buy another house or sell the house and go to another location plus uh, you mentioned that for also having lower upfront um, costs mm-hmm. renting you know requires lower um, upfront costs um, compared to buying whereas um, i don't know for the first time buyers, i don't know how much that is normally um if you would Oh, um, well, upfront costs, you've got loads, right? <laughs> to start off... So let's say a deposit for a first-time buyer. Right, so A, you've got 20... An average... Okay, let's go by UK house average. It's around yes. about 
200, let's say 260 odd thousand, right? Yes. So therefore, uh, 25% of that is around about 130, it's around about 60, let's say 60,000, right? So you're going to come up with that deposit, right? And for a rent, it's about two months rent or three yeah. months rent in advance yeah. if it's 1,500 pounds. But that's just a deposit. Yes. So when I'm going to buy a property, I have to pay stamp duty, right? 3% okay. Yes. Right, on purchase price. I have to pay conveyancing costs, so solicitor's costs, yes. right? If I'm getting a mortgage, I'm going to have to get a survey. Yes. Right. So these are all um, incidental kitching, costs. Kitching. Yeah, it's <laughs> So, you know, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, you know, the costs are going up. Correct. But say, for instance, we are buying a property around about 260000 you know, you're having to come up with 130, yeah. So 60,000, 65,000, then plus um, conveyancing, solicitor's fees, another maybe grand on top of that. So, you know, when you add it all up, right, you're going to come initially around about, if your deposit is 60,000, yes. you're going to end up paying around about 66,000. Wow. And that, and that's that's a quite significant number than having a renting property where you be paying yeah. two three months rent in advance. Yeah. And obviously, limited responsibility. You're not responsible for the major repairs as mm -hmm. you mentioned, except if you lo knock down the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You kind of like I come across the imagery. I was, Hold on. I'm sure there was no doorway in the hall here. Yeah, we found it more as easy access. We knocked the <laughs> hole there. Wow. You know, plus, obviously, you, you, for example, if you're renting, if you find another place where the service or the amenities are better, mm -hmm. you can easily relocate to that mm -hmm. area. But the disadvantages, yeah, Talib, you know, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, one of are. them is, for me, uh, because we rent, we aren't able to um, change the house how we want it to be, look like. That's the one of the main mm -hmm. things. We have a beautiful house where we live. It's a three-bedroom house. I, I just wanted to extend a bit more, extend mm -hmm. a bit more into the garden. Right. So you have an open plan dining, kitchen, mm -hmm. and have the living room separate. Mm -hmm. So have it more modernized mm -hmm. with uh, big um, long doors mm -hmm. which open up towards the garden. Mm -hmm. And we are unfortunately unable to do that because we're renting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know what? <clears throat> as a word of advice to you as a renter, if you're a long-term renter, you know a lot of landlords aren't just looking for people, just the highest rents that you can achieve. What we're looking for is stability and income stream, right? Yes. So if you're you know, a long-term renter and you, you pay on the time and you know anything has come you know wrong with the property, you're always in constant contact with your landlord. There's nothing to say, look to the landlord. Well, actually, you know we really do like the the property, but how about let's make some changes? Yeah, you know, would you be happy to do this? So you know it's all about communication. And talking about communication, we've got our second guest. Uh, online, uh, who and we're joined by Abdullah Qureshi. Now, Abdullah um, is a former public sector worker who is now a self-employed mortgage broker. Abdullah also facilitates property deals primarily in the residential sector. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Abdullah. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about the UK housing market to rent or to buy. Uh, what are the key factors, in your opinion, that potential home buyers should consider when choosing the right mortgage option for their specific needs and financial situation? I think there's a number of factors mm -hmm. that you need to look out for. One and the most obvious is credit worthiness. Right. So if you have good credit, you know, there's over 150 lenders in this country. Essentially, you could apply to each one of them and hypothetically get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Um 
Obviously, for those who have slightly poor credit, there are options available. But in today's market, especially, um, those rates will reflect their credit status. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing people need to be aware of is what their credit rating is. Mm-hmm. Look to improve it. And obviously, before application, mm-hmm. um, if they speak to their bank or a mortgage broker, they will be able to advise you know, what options are available. So, so use sites like work- Experian and these kind of sites just to find out exactly, you know, maybe you, you know, when you were a student back in the day, you didn't pay off something and you've got a CCJ <laughs> lying in, in, in like a skeleton in your closet, right? Yes, exactly. So Equifax and Experian are the two most used from lenders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on that note of being a student, usually after about six years, they disappear. So defaults in CCJs will disappear. Oh, so thank God. For those who have made a mistake <laughs> some years ago, um, there is a chance to rectify that. But mm-hmm. again, you know, it's down to an individual's credit worthiness. So I right. think that's one of the first factors. Mm-hmm. Um, the second factor I would say is whether you're employed or self-employed. So if you're employed, it's quite straightforward. It's your salary, usually multiplied, annual salary, sorry, multiplied by four and a half times or mm-hmm. five times if you're lucky. Whereas when you're self-employed, um, there are a number of factors. How long you've been running? Is it established business? Mm-hmm. Do your accounts, are they always in profit? Um, do you have a year-on-year profit trend or are you in losses? Um, so those two, you know, uh, depends again on your circumstances but self-employed can be a bit more trickier mm-hmm. um, but again if you have good strong accounts then it should be again you should be able to apply for mortgages especially with mainstream lenders um, high street lenders mm-hmm. um, one of the other factors of course is age um, most lenders will lend up to 75 years beyond that they will look at proof of pension or investment income so age can be a really big factor um, so obviously the younger you are, the longer term you can get, the more likely to get um, a mortgage. The older you get, it's more the burden is on how you can prove your income, especially mm-hmm. into retirement. Right. Um, and then lastly, I would say is there's interest only versus repayment. Um, so if you have a large deposit, usually around 50 to 55% loan to value, you could get interest only mortgage, um, which you know keeps your monthly lower, but then the person needs to know that they won't be paying capital mm-hmm. um, throughout the term of the mortgage. Um, mm-hmm. So those are the key factors I would I would certainly look out for if I was getting a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Abdullah, for example, for individuals um, who are seeking, let's say, long-term stability, what are the main benefits of owning a home compared to having the flexibility to come, uh, which come with renting, renting? I think that's an interesting question because my understanding is, and I do deal with the the sector renting is not as easy as it used to be yes i mean you still got to prove your credit worthiness there's um they will ask for references income um so maybe previously you'll be a bit more relaxed i think it's just as difficult to rent now it's again circumstantial if you can't afford to get a mortgage then i suppose you have no choice but to rent mm-hmm. um i think long-term benefits i think owning a property certainly out outweighs renting um Essentially, you own your own home rather than paying someone else's mortgage. Um, so that would be my take on it. Long term, I think mortgage is probably the best way forward because you own your own home. You know, those with families and children, you can leave something for them. Um, unfortunately, we don't all live forever. And that's one of the things we have to consider that you can leave an asset behind worth X amount to give, you know, the next generation a platform to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in you know, the 
Well, given the state of the real estate market currently, yeah, time is always of the essence. Um, how do you ensure a quick and sufficient, uh, or efficient, I should say, mortgage approval process, you know, for your clients? Because we know, I mean, uh, I think Saad was like saying uh, his brother was going through, you know, jumping through hoops trying to get a mortgage, right? So it's, I mean, it's quoted that, you know, getting a or buying a home or moving home. I suppose that equates to buying a home yes. and divorce are the two most traumatic events in your life, right? So how do you kind of ease that uh, process for your clients? I think it comes down to preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I'm always firefighting in my industry is paperwork, getting documents from clients. Right. I think the more prepared you are, the easier it becomes. So I'll give you an insight from, you know, from my side. As a mortgage broker, because I'm FCA regulated, it's very compliance heavy mm-hmm. until the file is not signed off. We can even put an application or even get an agreement in principle is what most, for example, estate agents ask for. Mm-hmm. So I think it's all about preparing your client, you know, getting, getting the information early doors, letting them review that. In my case, it's usually at least a week to 10 working days till a file is ready to submit. So mm-hmm. I think it's all about being prepared, simple stuff like IDs, credit report, pay slips, P60, bank statements. Um, you know, people should have those in hand. And I would certainly say before looking at houses is get an agreement in principle, because if you get an agreement in principle, essentially you've passed the lender's credit checks, which is one of the biggest things, uh, one of the biggest hurdles. And it means also at that stage, you've provided all your documents to your broker, to your bank to get to that Mm -hmm. stage. So after which it should be, you know, a case of putting in an offer, getting an offer from the lender and then moving to conveyancing. Mm. So, uh, the thing is, Abdullah, right? The the um, agreement or the, the the offer in principle is there a time limit on that? So agreement in principles last from anywhere to thirty to sixty days. Okay. A mortgage offer, which is binding, um, mm-hmm. subject to legals, usually sixty to ninety days, and you can get an extension. For example, if you're dealing with probate, mm-hmm. you know most lenders would extend that. But you're looking at sixty to ninety days max for a mortgage offer. 30 to 60 for agreement in principle. Mm. Um, so, yeah, those are the two timelines. But, again, it's all, all about being prepared, having the paperwork ready. Because mm. you never know. There might be some, like, I don't know, um, unto- if, if, say, for instance, you're buying in a chain, right? Yeah. And, you know, one one link in that chain isn't, isn't you know, either um, kind of like finishing and it holds up the whole chain. I mean, what will happen then, then? For instance, um, it's, it's actually down to the solicitor to convey that to the lender and say the chain is broken down. We mm-hmm. will need an extension. Mm-hmm. The lender is, it's look, once the lender's agreed to lend you money, it's very rare that they will pull out. Or, mm. you know, we've seen recently that happen because of the economic situation mm. because rates are changing and the lender obviously wants you to yeah, go exactly. into the new rate. <laughs> yeah. um, Instead of getting 4%, control. you're getting 8% now, right? Yeah. As the lender. Yes. Um, mm. Yeah. 8%, I think, is for those with the. Slightly poor credit, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's certainly heading that way. Um, but I've seen that very recently. Um, but again, if the lender's understanding and we can show from the solicitors a valid reason, they usually extend it for 30 days at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't be indefinite, but you know, you'll at least get two extensions before the lender will say go for a new application. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's say Abdullah, um, a individual like who has experienced um, job loss or has any financial setbacks during the pandemic. So, what are um, some resources available or support available to them to help them navigate the housing decision and avoid 
potential housing instability? I think in scenarios like that, yes. the only port of call really is to speak to your lender. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we go back to the pandemic, you may recall there was a holiday payment. Mm-hmm. Usually for three months, lenders were allowing clients to have uh, interest-only payments for three months or deferring their payments altogether. Um, recently, in the last two weeks, Jeremy Hunt has introduced a mortgage charter. Uh, mm-hmm. People may or may not be aware of that, which if you can show for the last 12 months up-to-date payments on your mortgage, lenders will now allow you up to six months interest-only mortgage or potentially other packages, i.e. extend the term mm-hmm. of your mortgage. Mm-hmm. So by extending the term of your mortgage, it reduces the monthly burden. Or, as I've mentioned, um, put you on an interest-only payment, which is usually about half of what you're paying on a res- on a regulated or residential mortgage. So there is support available, um, and I think lenders don't want you to go into default or, you know, in a worst case, into um, administration, whereby mm-hmm. they, you know, they will get the courts involved, and then you have to vacate, and it becomes quite messy. So the mortgage charter again introduced very recently is there to support those in financial um, financial issues which unfortunately there's a lot of a lot going around at the moment due to the economic instability um, so there is support available the short and simple is speak to your lender they should be more than willing to accommodate you and support mm-hmm. you throughout this throughout these you know difficult times mm, good words well Abdullah it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon on the drive time show thanks for joining us Thank you very time. Have a good day. Salaam alaikum. Salaam alaikum. Salaam. 0208 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, and we were talking uh, before we had our guests regarding the pros and cons of uh, renting. And some of the stats we, I suppose we've got there, we you know, kind of like uh, have to tell our listeners out there. Now, according to the BBC, young young adults in the UK are facing a cost of renting crisis currently. Four in 10 under 30 spend over 30%, a third of their pay on rent, wow. the highest in five years. Um, affordability has worsened in places like Rotherham and Bolton up in the north. Uh, under 30s allocate a larger proportion of their income uh, to rent compared to other age groups. Rising rents are driven by a shortage of rental homes, uh, increased taxes and policy changes since the 1980s. Housing campaigners call for the government to freeze rents and pause evictions. Uh, The government plans to offer a fairer deal for renters, giving them more power to challenge rent increases and poor conditions. I mean, what's the Islamic view regarding this? You know, um, regarding the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, once asked the question of someone who had inquired about interest um, so his um, does your money give birth to children? Um, I.e., if you keep it idle, will it reproduce itself? Mm-hmm. Of course, the answer was um, which it was given was no. Well, from this we can see, you know, the Islam considers money to be an inert factor in an economy, a factor indeed, but an inert um, factor which can play both positive and negative roles depending on who is utilizing that money. So human values uh, must be weighted to money before it produces any result one thing i will add here also is you know if you keep um the money idle in mm-hmm. one place 
it won't be it, you, it's not utilized for anything yeah. so that's it's why it's circulating. all it's circulating that's the word yeah. for the word it's not circulating so it's always keeping it circulated mm-hmm. that's why it's it, it, it could, so the money can make more money right yeah it's not so just it's, that it's it's just trade it's uh, a trade I mean, you know in the time of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him you know he was ren- a renowned trader yeah. right and so you know that's what societies economies are are based on its trade and that the circulation of money and a lot of people don't realize that money in itself is a product right yes. um so we've, we've talked about renting and we've also touched on uh owning right so you know one of the major advantages is building equity uh of actually having your own home home ownership allows individuals to build that equity over time um, and to make mortgage payments and the property potential uh, appreciates in value. And that has done historically, mm-hmm. uh, if we look at the UK market. Uh, there's stability and control. Owning a home provides that stability and the ability to you know, have control over the property, like yourself. You know, If I want to have decking, I can have decking. If I want a patio, I can have a patio because it's my own property at the end of the day. Uh, there's tax benefits and obviously the potential investment. Um, uh, historically, once again, in the UK, over the long term, and we're talking, you know, even like say post World War Two. So we're talking 1950s to present day, a period of 50, you know, 70 odd years, right? If you look at any graph, it's always been going up. Yes. Right. Not to say that eventually it won't go down, but the trend is always up. Um, what are some of the disadvantages? Obviously, what's the one is financial responsibility. You yeah. know, um, house um, owners are responsible for for the maintenance and the repairs. You know, which can be costly and quite time-consuming. Let's say if you have a crack in the wall now, you have to get that um, wall repatched. Mm-hmm. That is quite that that, that 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 takes time and you know investment capital, which has to be invested into it. But if if you're a renter, renter, that's the job of the landlord to yeah, make exactly. sure that house is safe. I mean, I think you've just pointed out one of the smaller things. Say, for instance, and boilers don't last forever, right? Oh yes, your boiler goes. That's gonna be roughly. Two and a half to three thousand pounds, right? So that's quite a hefty that's sum, a good money. right? Uh, you know, leaking the roof. Yeah, you know, well, you don't know how you know how that's going to affect you. So it is the the kind of like the uh, the costs that are attributed to owning your ho- own home are greatly magnified. Yeah, right? For example, if the wiring fails <laughs> of the electricity, that's a quite a good, <laughs> yeah, quite yeah, expensive exactly. um, yeah. repair to do. And also, you know, um, one is being less, le- which, which we um, touched upon um, earlier also, is lex- uh, less flexibility. You are bound to one place then. So you, when you're buying, mm-hmm. you ha- you are unable to move around then because you have to be be paying those um, um, what's called, um, mortgages which yeah. you have taken out. Yeah. And also, you know, um, the market fluctuates. And uh, for example, if the property value goes up, well and good. But mm. if it goes down, yeah, you're, you're stuck in that property. Property, then, right? yes. So if we look at some of the stats regarding um, first-time home buyers, yeah, in 2021 to 2022, there were uh, 852,000 first-time buyers in England. Uh, that's around a hundred thousand fewer than the previous year. Uh, as of 2021-22, the average age for a first-time buyer in England was 34. Now, in the same year, almost two uh, in five, uh, up to 40%, let's say, first-time buyers were couples without dependents, with less than a third uh, as one-person households. Uh, during the same period, 
The mean average deposit for first-time buyers in England was £43,693. Um, and the median, basically the one in the middle, was around about 30000 uh, In the same year, nearly all, 98% of UK first-time buyers, had a repayment mortgage as opposed to having a interest-only payment mortgage. More than two-thirds of first-time buyers uh, paid a deposit of less than 20% of the purchase price, with just 5% buying their first home outright. Blimey, they must have been really wealthy, Correct. right? Yeah, 5% being able to buy outright. Um, I mean, we're coming to the end of the uh, uh, end of this segment. So, you know, what are some of the kind of like concluding points? That so, you, you know, the decision about? between um, renting or buying a property in the UK has to be, it requires careful consideration. Renting offers, you know, short-term benefits, flexibility, re- reduce responsibility, and what's it called? Um, um, and so on the other way, individuals should um, evaluate their financial situation and consider market conditions and assets assets, um, about their long-term plans and lifestyle preferences. Mm -hmm. By weighing these factors and understanding the trade-offs involved, individuals can make an informed decision aligned to their current future. Mm. I mean, I suppose... Uh, really, Saad, that before, and it's something that uh, both our guests were like saying, it was, qu- it was quite, maybe 10 years ago, quite an easy decision here yes. in the UK. It's like, actually, it's a no-brainer. Let's, instead of renting, let's buy our own property. Correct. But now, it's really kind of up for grabs as to which you're, you're doing, really. But that brings us to the end of our first hour. Uh, uh, please join us in the second hour when we'll be talking about fostering. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to back, I should say, to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Saad Ahmed. So we've just covered in the first hour uh, the housing market, or we d- I wouldn't say covered, just given you a bit of a taster, right, as to whether to buy or to uh, to rent. And really, the I suppose the jury's still out regarding that. No one really knows, right, uh, what's the best option to do. But I think actually, the um, no or the, the the message from both our guests actually, for me anyway, that I picked up side was affordability. Yes. Yeah, don't. And this is very in terms of uh, because here we're at Voice of Islam and we, you know, we like to look at things, contemporary issues, right, through the prism of Islam. And one of those things is not to um, spend out of what Allah gives you. Right. Don't overextend yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So in terms of buying a house, you know, OK, we would want to get a bigger house and bigger whatever. That is, you know, hum, you know, human nature. But don't overextend yourself. Don't think that okay, maybe I've got this like job. We don't know about job security now, right? Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, that affordability, and I think both our guests said that regarding that. Don't bite more than than you can chew. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't bite off more than you can chew. But um, we're going to move on uh, swiftly to our next topic, which is fostering. So if you want to kick you us know, off. Fostering is a really um, important topic and, yeah. you know, um, making your house a home. But fostering is basically allowing uh, someone um, or a child um, who comes into foster care when they're 
are unable to live um, with the families for a certain period of time or be it for long long term or whatever mm. reason it is reason may be very widely for example a parent is ill um absent of parenting family dysfunctions and you know, drug abuse at home mm-hmm. etc um witnessing um, um domestic abuses or, or all these um, um factors which come into it so in britain there is a significant shortage of foster care mm-hmm. and over the past few years there has been an increase of 11% in children entering foster care mm-hmm. so wow. there has been increase in the past few years where children are coming into foster care you know this is quite mm-hmm. quite daunting at the same time unfortunately you know that sector faces a recruitment and retention crisis with an estimate 12% of foster carers leaving mm-hmm. um last year so there are more children now who need um that care and but on the other hand we have fosters foster carers who are leaving she leaving the the, the sector you know talib you know uh, for, for fostering you need to uh, i i commend first of all all the foster carers out there mm-hmm. i respect my salute them for the work they do it's a difficult job it's mm-hmm. a really because you are in charge of their moral training you you're making sure they're safe you mm-hmm. make sure they're fed making sure they understand they're educated mm-hmm. that's basically a fostering uh, is like a parent to them well you see you're you're about to embark upon that journey of being a parent yes. right so every parent out there will know how hard it is really to bring up a child correct yeah there's the nuts and bolts of it providing for them shelter food etc education but then you know there's also the moral side the the moral um upbringing uh the education that you have to provide for them and you know you can say um if you're a parent and that's your child it's a given right that Correct. you're going to provide these things but uh, being a foster carer right uh, to be a foster mom foster dad you know is to have even more compassion right and even more love because that child isn't yours Correct. at the end of the day right um and you know uh coming back to um you know those stats that you gave us i mean one of the contributing factors to the problem that we're seeing that this increase of uh, more foster or more kids that need fostering versus actually a decrease in fostering carers yeah uh, this is uh, to this problem you know there's a lack of awareness about the financial aspects and preparation required to become a foster care provider uh which could be discouraging potential candidates from stepping forward correct um the requirement for foster caregivers in the UK to undergo a thorough assessment process that delves into their entire life history including relationships significant events that in itself can be discouraging uh balancing the need for comprehensive evaluations with reducing potential barriers and emotional burdens could help encourage more individuals to consider fostering now the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him has said the best house among the muslims is a house in which there is an orphan who is treated well and the worst house among the muslims uh, is a house in which there is an orphan who is treated badly correct now allah says in the holy quran in chapter 6 verse 152 and slay not your children for fear of poverty it is we who provide for you and for them yes. so you know regarding just those two uh, or you know the 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 
the behavior and the thoughts of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, yeah, it shows us the significance that, you know, Islam puts upon the care of children. Yes, you know, um, in the Holy Quran is always mentioned um, um, yatim, um, which means orphans, and mm-hmm. then it, it mentions the poor, pause after that. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not putting a less significance to the poor, but it's giving that importance which mm-hmm. a orphan needs because they are the future, for example. Mm-hmm. They are um, the next generation who mm-hmm. are being brought to up to society, so making mm-hmm. sure they are educated, mm-hmm. they are well fed, they understand the world mm-hmm. before they um, they go on their own journey. Mm-hmm. journey after. Because remember one thing, um, one question was asked to His Holiness, may, um, may Allah strengthen his hand, a, 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 a child asked, are we, um, um, is a foster child allowed to have your own name or or the parents' name who have fostered him, and his holiness reply regarding him, no, he has to be called by the name of his parents, because mm-hmm. that's that's biological his parents. biological parent, that's his identity, that's his true identity where mm-hmm. he's from, and it's our responsibility or the parents or, or the foster care responsibility who have adopted him, for example, to let him know, okay, this is your true identity. I I'm here to support you. I'm here to understand you. And you know, most um who go into foster caring mm-hmm. or they if they have a good secure environment in foster care they excel in, mm-hmm. in the future also mm-hmm. while if someone's bouncing left and right one foster care to the other they sometimes unfortunately in, in this reality which we live in um bounce um they sometimes have a l- lack of understanding mm. too true so that's why you know one thing um which we need to understand is mm. that Fostering is a really important role. It it, it requires massive amount of your own time to mm-hmm. spend on that child. Mm-hmm. One thing which um, um what's it called holds back um people from fostering is space. In, mm-hmm. in especially in the UK where we live, yeah, it's really difficult to have an extra spare bedroom where you can have someone for fostering. Because let's say if there are five people living in a house already. How you're able to provide an, an extra bedroom for the child who needs mm-hmm. the care, exactly. even though you're passionate about it, you don't have the means or mm. the financial stability. Unless the government the government is trying to do so, it's work also. Unless, for example, if they can provide them a bigger house, mm-hmm. let's say, yeah, an extra room, okay, that 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 will be paid by us. But that's a problem, right? Because yes. the government's not even building enough houses. But that's a different. <laughs> that's a that's a topic for another thing. I mean, what is fostering? Yeah, children and young people need fostering for all so- sorts of reasons. Uh, you've already, you know, pointed out a few sides. I mean, sometimes it's because someone in their family is too ill to actually look after them, or there's been a family breakdown. Uh, sometimes it's because they have been neglected or abused and aren't safe. Uh, our approved foster parents provide a safe place and the support that these children and young people need to thrive, whatever the situation that they come by. Um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, himself acted as a guardian and caretaker for orphan children. Uh, he was a foster father to Zaid ibn uh, Hreta, an orphan... Haritha. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's my THs. Yeah. Uh, an orphan before the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, adopted him. Uh, our, lo- our beloved Prophet treated him with love, care and equality, exemplifying the importance of fostering and caring for vulnerable children within the Islamic community. Um, and to speak more about this, uh, about fostering and the need for fostering in our society currently, we're joined by uh, our two guests, um, and we are joined by Dr. Sheila Redfern, 
uh, and Shaima uh, Izidin. So uh, Dr. Sheila is the head of Family Trauma Clinical Department. She's a consultant clinical psychologist at Anna Freud Foundation, author of Reflective Fostering Study. Uh, Shema Izzeden is a research officer on the Reflective Fostering Study and co-lead on the INCLUDE project at uh, the Anna Freud, uh, Anna Freud Foundation. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, ladies. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So we've got you both on the line. If I could just direct the questions to one or the other, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, So we've been uh, speaking or we've kind of like introduced fostering as our second topic of the day. So firstly to Shema, right, can you tell us about the national study on foster care and kinship care that you're currently uh, doing and why is it crucial to recruit more South Asian uh, South Asian foster carers and kinship carers. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So um, I'm here to talk to you about the Reflective Fostering Study. Mm-hmm. And this is a large-scale research study being conducted by UCL, the University of Hertfordshire and the Anna Freud. And it's an evaluation of a support program for foster carers and kinship carers. And the program is called the Reflective Fostering Program, and it's actually been developed by Dr. Sheila Redfern. Mm-hmm. Now, most people um, will have heard of a foster carer, and they know what a foster carer is. But just to clarify what a kinship carer is, and that's when you have a family member, like a grandparent or an auntie, and they're looking after a child who can't remain in their care of the parents. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the evaluation, what we want to find out is whether this Reflective Fostering Program can strengthen that relationship between a carer and the child. We want to see if it can improve the emotional well-being of the child. And we also want to see whether it can, you know, reduce carer stress and feelings of burnout. So, um, um, what's the purpose um, um, behind um, conducting this study? So, in terms of the purpose, um, so at the beginning of your program, you talked about sort of the retention, um, the retention crisis yes. mm-hmm. of foster carers. And so one of the issues around that in terms of how we can retain foster carers relates to how we can support them. And at the moment, there's not much sort of quality evidence out there in terms of what interventions work best when it comes to supporting foster carers. So we're trying to address that gap through this research um, by looking at how best to support foster carers and the impact of the Reflective Fostering Programme. And I noticed, going back to your first question, you were asking about sort of why is it important that we have South Asian carers Mm -hmm. and kinship carers. And, I mean, when we talk about research, we want our research to be representative of all foster carers. So if we did a study and we only had sort of um, female carers, then the findings would only be relevant to female carers. So what we found when we were doing the reflective fostering study was that there were we were not getting sufficient number of male carers, South Asian carers, and kinship carers. So we set up a program called a project called Include, and this is a co-produced project working with sort of foster carers and kinship carers, looking at the barriers of why these groups aren't taking part in research, and what we can do to change that within our own study so we can you know improve representation. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. But actually, as a kind of follow-up question to that, Shema, I mean, what was the reason, or have you found a reason as to why you know, South uh, Southeast Asian or South Asian um, families are not, you know, kind of not giving up this information or not engaging in this study initially? Yeah, so I mean, there are many barriers. Um, and just, I guess, to name a few, one would be that there's a lack of understanding around the purpose of research, for example. Mm-hmm. So for some, you know, someone said that research is a bit like therapy and, you know, it has a lot of many uncertainties attached to it. Um, another reason we were given relates to trust. So if there's a lack of trust, then you're less likely to engage in research, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for example. Um, and, for example, again, confidence. So, for example, we're trying to get carers to take part in a 10-week program. So, you know, we have carers who will say to us things like, oh, will I fit in? Will I be judged? Will mm-hmm. there be people be like me? So, you know, she's around that as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my next question is actually to Dr. Redfern, uh, Sheila. I mean, what is, uh, and Shoma touched upon it, uh, so what is the this uh, reflective fostering program? Yes, thank you, and thanks for having me on the program today. So the main aim of the program, which as Shema said, is a is a group program. We mm-hmm. ask foster carers to come together in a group that spans ten weeks, and each um, group has a special theme to it. But overall, the aim is to help carers to take what we call a reflective stance. So that's really thinking about the impact on themselves mm-hmm. as well as their foster, as well as the foster child of um, of the experience of being a foster carer and of being in care. Um, and the program aims to support carers specifically towards improving and strengthening their relationship, but also to promote the child's emotional and behavioural well-being. And what, what Meta sort of analysis has shown us in the past is that there, firstly, there's a lack of studies, as Shama said earlier, on, on you know, how fostering impacts on the child's outcomes and their general well-being. Mm-hmm. But also there's a lack of programmes that actually focus on the foster carers themselves. Mm. So a lot of times, um, you know, all foster carers will go on lots of mandatory training, but the focus is nearly always on um, how you can meet the child's needs, which of course is a huge part of the role. But in order to be able to meet a child's needs, particularly some children and young people who've had difficult early starts in life, then you need to be fairly robust and resilient yourself. And mm. you need to have somebody who can, can help you and support you in that role. And so that's what we've found is that We've angled this program towards thinking about what what do you need if you're a carer and what's your experience like and how can being thought about in a reflective way yourself help you to then meet your child's needs. So so that's really the main difference than the foster carers that we've worked with so far have told us that's the component of the program that they've really, really appreciated is where somebody's not just said, you know, um, you need support, but actually showing them how how they can get that support and what that support might look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Redfern, um, why is the reflective fostering program specifically um, of interest to foster carers, and in what way is it different from, uh, let's say, any other programs and training for foster caring? Yeah, so I, mean, I think one of the main differences is that focus on their experience of foster carers and the support they can get. But in terms of why we'd like people to take part is mm-hmm. we, there isn't really an evidence out there this is the largest study that we know that's been conducted on fostering mm-hmm. so anyone taking part in this study can really help to contribute towards an evidence base and our, and our knowledge of what it is that foster carers need but also what it is that children in care need from that relationship and if we can really pinpoint that at the end of this research 
will know a lot more about what's going to help to stabilise that relationship. And it might help um, placements not break down so frequently. And we're hoping that one of the outcomes will be stability of that placement and relationship. So a longer term outcome might be that if this programme works, that we have more placements that, that are long term and less breakdowns. But also we have a group of foster carers who feel really um, you know, committed to the role and that the relationship with their child is one that is not only something they can manage, but something that they can really make a big difference in a child's life and have a really significant role themselves. So it's partly about enhancing the role of foster carers because we know that in society, foster carers are not always highly valued and there can mm -hmm. be some stigma in the roles. But in being part of this study and this programme, we're really hoping to, to, to turn that around a little bit and help people to see that this is probably one of the most important jobs they could have. Mm. I mean, Sheila, I mean, why is that, the case because I, I i agree with you yeah that you know in the past there's always been and i can't i i can't for the life of me think of why that there is a stigma attached to uh, fostering or foster carers why mm -hmm. is that i mean i don't know the whole answer to that but some of the thoughts that i've had are that i think partly the stigma comes from the fact that children who go into care are sometimes stigmatized as children you know, who have problems or mm -hmm. children who are difficult rather than children who have high level of need and actually need somebody really protective and secure in their lives. Um, but I think it's also something about the wider role of being, if you ask lots of parents, they'll say that, you know, stop-at-home parents might say that being a parent isn't valued that widely in society. Mm. You know, you're not, it's not that we have a kind of place a high value on actually raising children, whereas, you know, really, in our minds, it's probably... The most important thing yeah. you can do is to yeah. raise happy, healthy, resilient children in this society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, uh, in your opinion, you know, what positive impact uh, have you actually observed, uh, you know, in the lives of foster children or foster care children uh, who have been placed in, you know, this programme? I mean, the things that I've observed over the years and through this programme are, Firstly, how much the foster carers gain from being part of this study and part of the programme in terms of them feeling valued. And like any job or role, if you feel valued yourself, then you bring that to the workplace or to, you, to your home. So I think that's a really important thing that they gain from it. Mm -hmm. And then the long, we don't yet know the long-term outcomes because the study doesn't finish, the results won't be in until sometime next year. But what we've seen so far in some of the... Um, data is that the relationship is stronger and children feel more secure and more mm -hmm. thought about and more understood. That's a big part of the programme is that lots of children who've had these very difficult backgrounds, they never really had a relationship where somebody's helped them to feel understood mm -hmm. and has helped them to kind of learn a little bit about what makes a functional relationship. So mm -hmm. what we're seeing is foster carers themselves feeling very valued and then feeling that the skills they've gained from the programme, they can bring to not just one relationship, but lots of relationships in their mm -hmm. life, even to their own children if they've got their own birth children. And we hope that long term, uh, that what foster carers will gain from this programme is, is a set of skills they can bring to a number of foster children in the future, not just the ones they have currently. Mm -hmm. But really strengthening the relationship, the carer-child relationship, that's the thing that we believe is key to all children's emotional and behavioural well-being, and particularly children who haven't had that secure attachment in their early lives. But mm. foster carers can really make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, um, this, this is a question for both our guests. Um, what can um, the listener do to help promote the study? Dr Sheila, if you can kindly go first. I'm going to hand that over to Shema because Perfect. she's um, part of the 
she's a researcher on the study, so Jamie, you might want to talk a little bit about recruitment, which is key to thank us, you. isn't it? Yeah, thank you, Sheila. And um, so the study's been running for a couple of years now, and we're now entering the sort of last recruitment round. So this is the last chance foster mm -hmm. carers and kinship carers can join. And we've set up a campaign called Target 200, and that's because we need 200 carers to join the study by September. Um, so I guess what we're asking is if one of your listeners is a foster carer or kinship carer and they have a child aged between 3 and 14, then please consider taking part in the study. But perhaps one of your listeners has a family member or friend who is a foster carer or maybe you're part of an organisation who's in contact with foster carers. So what we're asking is if you can please spread word um, about the study and help raise awareness. Um, our foster carer group of sort of foster carers and kinship carers have told us sort of that mouth, um, word of mouth is the most powerful tool. Correct. So I guess we're just trying to harness the people power to spread the word. Mm -hmm. And um, with that, Shema, I mean, how would, uh, say, for instance, if we were a listener out there who is a kinship carer or foster carer, get in touch with you guys? And so we're on Twitter at Fostering Study. Mm -hmm. um, they can also email us at, it would be reflectivefostering at anafroid.org. Okay. Um, but perhaps we can also maybe put a link on your website for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I'm sure our, our socials, our, our producers can uh, do that on an uptake. And, you know, as a last word regarding the recruitment, yeah, because I think, uh, I can't remember whether it was you or Sheila saying that one of the barriers to, um, you know, a lot of people partaking in, in the programme was that uh, uncertainty. So uh, as to what the programme is about, uh, ultimately. Um, but, you know, just to reiterate um, the transparency of the programme and what the uses are. Should I speak to that one? I think just to reiterate yeah. what the programme is for, um, it's, a, it's a study to really show the difference that fostering can make in, in terms of children's outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if, if foster carers out there or friends or family members know foster carers who know that they're doing a really difficult but a really important job, but actually there's no general public recognition of what that job actually means in terms of outcomes for children, then this is a really important way that they can actually contribute to us trying to prove that the relationship is the key to those children's mm -hmm. outcomes in life. So it would really make a, a huge difference to not just the study and the evidence, but actually hopefully to enhancing the role and the importance of being a foster carer today. Hmm. And Shema, you said you, know, you target 200. So where are you on that 200 count? At the moment, we're at around 30. So you're around 30, so you need 170. Yeah, correct. Right, okay, let's make a push out there to our listeners out there. If you're a carer uh, or a kinship carer, you know, please sign up for this this programme. But uh, Dr. Sheila Redfern, Shema Isident, thank you very much for uh, joining us this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, very, you much. very much for having us. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0208 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. And... You know, actually, it's just come to my mind, right, that we've erred somewhere, but not, not regarding this particular topic, but as I was thinking of the Insta story, we hadn't given the, the stats out. The stats out. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of quick, hold on, listen to this. That was a slap on the wrist there for myself. Uh, I won't slap side because we're not into violence. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but so, what, what were the, what were the so results? So the question was asked currently, how are you living in your home? Right, okay. So the um, answer to that 
do you own the house? Do you mortgage the house or you pay rent? Mm-hmm. So 18% said they own the house. Okay. 21% said they are on a mortgage right now. Mm-hmm. And 62% said they They're pay rent. rent. As we mentioned before, uh, it's how the Europeans yep. are living. Yeah. So we're getting, although we've left Europe through Brexit, we resemble them in terms of the housing market. But that, yes. that was an aside. That was a bit of a correction by myself because I totally forgot. Um, actually, it's like jointly because, you know, Saad <laughs> is, is the co-presenter here. Yeah, so we will good. equally shoulder the, the burden of that, that. Right, right? But anyway, coming back to, you know, there's, you know, this, 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 this program. Yes, foster that, care. Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Sheila. Redford and uh, Shema Isidon were uh, talking about, and you can you understand the importance of it. And correct to to a certain degree, I can understand. You know, with Southeast Asian families, and I was I was thinking actually, you could be a carer without even knowing it, that you are a kinship carer. And why I say that is that you know a lot of say um, Southeast Asian. Or Southeast Asian culture is very much keeping, uh, as a family unit, the extended family. Correct. Right? So, you know, we've got grandparents living in the same house. Okay? And so, in terms of, it's not really actually normally the, 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 the issue that... You know those grandparents actually providing care, but we tend to like think of it as like yeah, you know, if you think of it as a tree of wisdom, right? You've got grandparents, or effectively in a household, you've got three generations. Yes. Okay, and with that, you have the benefit of experience. You have the benefit of wisdom. Okay, and those you know grandchildren or uh, children can kind of dip into that well of Correct. experience, right, with their grandparents. Um, so. In effect, uh, you know, a lot of Southeast Asian uh, households and families are already have this model of a kinship caring model happening. Now, okay, we're not saying that you know there is a bit of dysfunctionality uh, in that uh, household whereby you know the children um, you know kind of aren't being looked after by their biological parents, mm-hmm. but maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Who knows, right? Who knows what happens within a family? Correct. But I can understand, I think, uh, Dr. Shashida was like saying, and Shema were like saying, that there's a reticence from uh, these Asian households to, I suppose, open their doors and say, look, you know, this is what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the same? I remember because my grandmother lived with us for many years mm-hmm. and we, we, we had three generations living in, in, in the same household. Mm-hmm. The wisdom was coming from my grandmother, the experience uh, in in the from the UK was coming from my, from my parents, mm-hmm. and the trial and error was coming from the children. <laughs> so we were learning from our parents, and the teacher was our grandmother. Mm-hmm. So we had that kind of kingship fostering within mm-hmm. our own uh, our own household. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, for fostering uh, in the UK, I that's that's why I always re- reiterate this: it, it's a commendable job which mm-hmm. the members are doing out there, and there are many different types of fostering. Also, mm-hmm. one might be, let's say, a short-term foster carer. Mm-hmm. So, if someone stopgap, yes, or a long-term or emergency, if, um, if someone needs in the next twenty-four hours needs foster caring, that many different types of foster carers out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they all do you know commendable jobs. For example, short-term um, fostering involves. I'm caring for a child or a young person on a temporary basis for a couple of days, months, or weeks, and in long term, 
Um, fostering involves looking after a child or a young person on a permanent basis until they reach um, the age of adulthood and they're ready to live independently. And mm. emergency fostering is when a child's uh, home possesses a risk to their well-being for um um, um, example, let's say eviction or death or illness of a parent, physical, sexual abuse or a police case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, re- and, and respite fostering is um, looking after a young person while, while it's a young uh, or the regular fosters take a family break. So I know um, a couple of uh, members in our own community who will be fostering mm-hmm. and um, uh, one of them was a respite foster of uh, for, for them for a couple of um, days mm-hmm. till that family went for a break and then when they came back they, they were they were living in the same house and then they came back and they like, it was called mm. and the regular foster carers took over again mm. so you know it's 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 a really commendable job it's mm. a really um hands-on job because mm-hmm. I mean, it must be very yes. taxing you know, yes it's, it, it, i mean i don't mean taxing in the sense of oh god you know it's like a job but you know, to be, uh, and I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you should enter that arena of becoming a foster carer or kinship carer thinking that there's a monetary return for it, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, whilst, you know, going doing your nine-to-five job, there's, you're doing it not out of love, you're doing it for monetary gain, yes. right? You're, you know, you're giving your labor and you're expecting a wage back. And although foster carers and foster uh, kinship carers do get... Um, you know, compensation, most probably not enough, really, <laughs> given the government's way of paying. But, you know, they, they will get some monetary uh, compensation uh, for their foster caring. But ultimately, I wouldn't have thought that that is the reason why they enter into becoming a foster parent. Yeah. You know, this really what you were just mentioning about monetary um, being uh, uh, the financial aspect of, mm-hmm. out of it. I just remember there's a narration of, um, of the Holy Prophet's peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that one who sponsors an orphan, and mm-hmm. um, whether it is his relative or not his relative, and uh, um, and I will be like this in Paris. So he put up his middle, uh, his index finger and the middle mm-hmm. fingers together, saying we will be together. It is mentioned same in another narration. I am the person who looks after an orphan and provides for him, mm-hmm. and will be in paradise like this. Mm-hmm. Putting um, putting the index finger uh, and the middle finger together, we'll be so close. So you know the importance of looking after of the well-being mm-hmm. of uh, of an orphan. It's you know. It's it's been it's 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 been in Islam, Islam from the from the get go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know uh, when we talk about uh, Islam as well. I mean, Islam provides complete guidance uh, for the upbringing of children uh, in the Holy Quran and in the you know in the the behavior of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him. Correct. And he said, "Do not curse a child, uh, for when you curse angels, add let it be like that." And like that, it becomes. Address a child politely and courteously, for a child is a great mimic. If you address it rudely, it will return the compliment in kind. Do not lie to a child, nor be peevish or arrogant with it. It will certainly imitate you. Yeah, you know, it's really correctly said. And you know, thought with this, um, let's say, um, you, you, you tell your child, um, go... Um, Go to mosque, for example. Let, mm-hmm. Let's take let's take mosque for example, and you yourself are not going there. Mm-hmm. The child will be okay if dad is not going. Why, <laughs> yeah, why should exactly, I go? Right, right. So 
whatever you say, you have to uphold those standards also. If you're mm-hmm. teaching them, you should be um, being able. Uh, you should be able to teach that. Yeah, also. practice what you preach. Basically. Practice what you preach. Yeah. Or, or that, that, yes. So you have to be understand. As with fostering, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you having um, members living um, 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 with you who are f- uh, in foster care, so you make sure that the education is spot on. Because mm-hmm. your um, um, response, that's your sole responsibility, making sure that their education is as spot on, uh, they're, they're well fed mm-hmm. and they're secure. Mm. I think it's remiss of us actually not to, because we've been talking about being a foster uh, or a parent, a fostering parent. But let's go into the nuts and bolts of actually what the, uh, what, yeah, what, what, what is. You know, the skill set or what you require to become a foster parent. Now, fostering is, we've already pointed out, distinct from raising your own children. Yes. Uh, so it's crucial to understand the process and what that process entails. Uh, foster parents offer day-to-day care for children whilst tending to their health, education and overall uh, well-being. <coughs> Excuse me. Additionally, foster parents attend meetings, appointments and maintain records on behalf of that child. Uh, they often assist in facilitating contact with the child's birth family. When you foster a child or young person, their birth family or the local authority remains legally responsible for them. Typically, a child stays in foster care until they reach 18. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got a bit of a kind of like tickly throat. Uh, <clears throat> there are various types, types of foster care tailored for each unique uh, each child's unique needs, whether it be temporary or long term. So, <coughs> all these things are taken into account. Yes. So, with this, we have our second guest with us, Anna Van Dyke, who is actually a foster mom. And with this, I would like to welcome her to our show. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace be upon you. How are you, Anne? Thank you. I'm well. And how are you? Um, well, thank you for asking. You know, well, I'm coughing at the moment, <laughs> yes, actually, Anne. My- Sorry about that. <laughs> So he has a tickly throat. Same thing. (laughs) So, you know, um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on such an um, important topic or um, important issue about fostering. So what, obviously, you're a foster parent and what um, uh, motivated you to become a foster mother and open up your home to he uh, age 10 and boy age 12 in 1983? Well, I was single, and I was ready to start a family, Mm -hmm. and at that time, there were so many refugees fleeing South Vietnam, Mm -hmm. and I was very aware of that, and so I decided that um, I wanted to get a child out of, you know, the worst circumstances, Um, and I approached an an agency, um, it was called Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, and uh, I said that I was sure that I only wanted one child, and I only wanted a little girl, and I wanted her to be a toddler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they showed me the pictures of Hin, who was 12, um, my foster son, and Boy, his sister, um, a girl, who was 10 at the time. Uh, they showed me pictures of them in a refugee camp, and they were these mm-hmm. little skin scared looking kids and so i said yes i'll take them mm. so uh and as a foster mother from a you know different religious background right how did you show your support for uh, he and boys buddhist faith yeah and 
you know, can you provide some examples of your efforts to embrace and respect actually their beliefs? Because it must be hard, right? No, it was not hard really? at all. And okay. I sincerely, I sincerely mean that. I knew that it was so very important that every part of their culture of course, including religion, be accepted and continued in their new home where everything else would be foreign. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things I did is I took them to the nearest refuge, uh, nearest pagoda, mm -hmm. Buddhist pagoda, which was about an hour away. Okay. Um, and also we set up a Buddhist, a traditional Buddhist worship table in the house. And the first time I took them to my church, um, one of the church leaders handed them a Buddha. Mm -hmm. So we became a very, um, a very um, blended Christian and Buddhist household. Okay. Um, and I found no conflict whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So as I read, um, as I tried to to uh, tell them the stories uh, about Buddha that I thought their parents would have told them. I've found that he taught the same principles that Jesus taught. Mm -hmm. it, it was just no problem, and it was just um, it expanded my faith in many ways too. Mm -hmm. So, did did uh, Hin and Boy actually have that reciprocal uh, relationship in terms of religion as well? I mean, did I, what? If you don't mind me asking, what what are you then? Are you uh, a Christian? Yeah, okay. a Protestant Christian. Protestant, At the okay. time, I belonged to a, a denomination called um, United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they were very comfortable going to my church, uh, partly because they could see nobody was pressuring them to mm -hmm. change, and they got a lot of attention and support about their Buddhist faith. Uh, they were very much involved with the youth group at my church, which did a lot of fun things. Um, so, and I, I made clear to them that I wanted them to stay Buddhist, that that was their faith journey. Mm -hmm. And all my friends were supportive of that and did the same thing. Mm. So they felt safe in that regard. They felt safe to go to church because there was no pressure. Mm. I mean, yeah, we're talking about religion uh, as one of you know you're welcoming their religion, but I, to my mind, you know the biggest hurdle for you, uh, for both yourself and you know uh, hen and boy was the language barrier. How did you communicate with them then? <laughs> well, that that did take some work. Yeah. Um, fortunately, boy, the the my foster daughter who mm -hmm. was ten. Um, she was a voracious student, okay. and uh, she just threw herself into learning English. Plus, I was able to uh, uh, to get this lovely local woman who was Vietnamese mm -hmm. uh, by ancestry, and she became their Vietnamese and Chinese and English tutor okay. because <laughs> the kids spoke both Vietnamese and Chinese, right. and Chinese was their original ancestry. So that was very helpful. Plus, they were put into uh, English as a second language classes at school, and I put a lot of effort as well into to helping them with the basics. I put signs all around the house mm -hmm. that with the names of what everything was. Plus, my goddaughter, who was nine, 
lived very nearby. And she spent a lot of time with them, and she helped them understand kids' culture in mm -hmm. the U.S. Mm -hmm. Interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you if you stick by education, you know, in the in the nineteen eighties at that time, how did you address the bullying and the stereotyping that they faced in school? And what a role did you um, experience as a civil rights investigator playing in um, advocating for them? Remembering that time makes me mad all over again because mm. it never should have happened. Correct. Um, uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where, where we lived, um, there was fortunately an increasing Asian population, particularly from Vietnam. So, but still, they were definitely the minority in Harrisburg schools. And Hin and Boy had come from a culture where you do not complain. Mm -hmm. So actually, they were being bullied for quite a while before I became aware of it. Mm. And I was just like any parent would be. I felt like a mother bear. And I went tearing into that school. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, actually, the administration and the teachers did not seem to be as aware as I had hoped they would be. And they really did address it. I was very grateful for that. The other problem that I had with teachers is because Hin and Boy were Asian, there were some stereotypes that some of the teachers had that Hin and Boy would both be excellent students. Mm -hmm. Now, Boy was a very, she loved academics. Hin did not. Mm -hmm. Hin was a doer and a maker. Mm -hmm. He was not, he didn't enjoy academics. And he was doing poorly. And um, when I contacted his teacher or his counselor, his counselor, the counselor said, oh, don't worry, he's Asian, he'll get it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need to remind you what I do for a living. I'm a civil rights investigator for the state, and it's illegal for you to make assumptions about his academic ability mm -hmm. based on his national origin. Mm. Well, <laughs> that, that must have gone down. That must have gone down great guns. <laughs> yes, yes, it did. <laughs> I suppose you. I suppose you're not on on his Christmas card list. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, it's the kind of thing that needed to be said. Yeah. And it reminded me of how many parents whose children are in the minority who don't have that angle that they can present to a school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so, um, which actually brings a question to my mind regarding just fostering full stop right so you know you're raising or have raised three teenagers and yeah that in itself is challenging uh, given also that two of them are uh, foster children I mean how did you manage the demands of you know being a foster parent uh, I mean, we you know just had two previous guests on who are conducting a survey uh, regarding uh, fostering, kinship caring, and looking. And one aspect of that program is actually uh, looking at, you know, how, you know, the carers themselves, the foster parents themselves feel 
right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what were the demands? I mean, what did you find was the most demanding in, in you know, being a fostering parent to, to both her hen and boy? Oh, my goodness. Can I give you a list? <laughs> no, you can't. Well, actually, you know, Anne, you can give us a list. But what's your, you know, what, what was the one you, you felt kind of like the most kind of like the biggest hurdle to, 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 to kind of like get over? Well, I guess it was that at the time in their lives, when they were teenagers, mm-hmm. when their parent, whoever that parent was, had to be um, insisting on a certain behaviors mm-hmm. and eliminating other behaviors, the parent that was doing that was not their biological parent. It was me. Right. Um, but... It helped me to have him at one point say, well, I don't agree with my parents all the time either. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, my goodness, it doesn't matter who's saying this. They're teenagers, and they're going to be pushing mm. at the fences. Yeah, rebelling. And, and I want to add that the three teenagers that I had included their older sister. Right. Because after him and boy were with me for... Oh, gee, about six years, their older sister escaped. And she was in a refugee camp, and we were able to get her out. Mm -hmm. So I had all three of them at one time. Um, And it was was like being um, outnumbered. But I kept saying to myself, they're teenagers. Your job is to, is to, Give them structure and in, insist on it, and they will grow out of this. And they did. Mm. Like all teenagers do. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, if you could share, you know, some memorable um, experiences or um, any milestones in, in, in the lives of he and and boy during the time they were in UK. Yes. There's one thing in particular that comes to mind. And this would have been before we got their sister, Huang, before we got her out. So it was just him and boy with me. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from uh, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services saying that a grandmother and her two grandchildren were in a refugee camp in Indonesia that was going to be closed. Right. And that meant the three of them would be sent back to Vietnam where they would go directly to jail. And so the agency asked if I could take them in. And I thought, oh, my goodness, three more. And I, and I said, well, let me talk to him and boy about this. And as soon as I did, as soon as I mentioned it, they both burst into tears and said, please, can't we take them? Mm-hmm. And I was so proud of them for saying, yes, 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 it, it will make our house tighter. It doesn't matter get them out and did. and so the grandmother and her her two grandchildren um fung and kwong who were um 10 and 8 came to live with us and it worked just fine it you know they were so grateful wow. to be safe and it was so helpful to have him and boy translating with them mm-hmm. it worked Mm. I mean, as and as a foster mother, you know, what advice would you give to others who are considering, you know, opening up their homes 
you know, to children in need, uh, especially those from you know, diverse uh, cultural or uh, and religious backgrounds, you know, kind of foreign backgrounds. What advice would you give to someone like that? Well, first of all, is to not insist that this child be like you, okay. but rather to make sure you know, continue to know as much as you can about their culture and their faith background and to respect it and blend it into your household. I think mm -hmm. that's crucial. I heard true horror stories about people who called themselves Christians who insisted that Buddhist refugees give up their faith in wow. order to have a sponsor in the U.S. That just mortifies me. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, so that's terrible. That, it is. Mm. So, so respecting and blending the household. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's your piece of advice. I mean, as an aside, what, I mean, you know, they're, they, they're in their 50s now, right? Hen and boy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, have they, I mean, are you still in touch with them? Are you basically are still a family unit, effectively? I mean, you're not still kind of, they're not still living with you, are they? I, I would hope that they've gone on and uh, made households of their own. Yes, they have. And right. we are in touch all the time. Mm -hmm. And they are now, oh, oh, let me tell you that when the kids were in their mid-20s, we finally got their mother and father, their grandmother and younger oh. sister. Okay. Oh my gosh. That was the most wonderful day on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I'm in touch with the whole family regularly mm -hmm. and they all now live in San Diego. Okay. Partly because that weather is more what they're used to. <laughs> right. Our Pennsylvania weather is It's a bit really colder hard. most probably in Pennsylvania. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that weather was really hard on the adults. Mm -hmm. And also in San Diego, they have extended relatives who um, were sponsored there mm -hmm. back in the 80s and 90s. Excellent. Well, Anne, it's been a, a, a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, 0208 6877878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, you know, even just from that, you know, I was speaking to Anne just then. Yes. You just felt the, you know, whatever you could give in terms of, you know, the, the material aspect of fostering, i.e. Uh, shelter, food, uh, clothing, a home in, in material respects. I think... You could hear in Anne's voice the joy that it brings to you as a foster parent. Correct. You know, Talib, uh, she took words from her mouth also. You know, it's, Sorry. That, it's, the, <laughs> it's the love uh, that Anne gave to them yeah. that made them um, these beautiful individuals in, in this um, day and age. Mm. You know, that's the thing, that's the beauty of fostering. But it's also um, a sad reality that many are leaving it because mm -hmm. they are unable to do it for whatever reason it is. Plus, you know, some people who are passionate about it here in the UK, they're unable to do it because they don't have any space. You know, I had a, I was fortunate enough to be in Harrisburg quite some time back and my, my 
uh, uncle auntie live there mm-hmm. and they have a beautiful big house there here right. in the uk you know it, it's it's the opposite you mm-hmm. have more smaller houses they're more concise mm-hmm. and you know that's the one drawback we have here right. <laughs> uh, everything is compatible or comparative right and yes. it's all your perspective because if you like i, I go back to hong kong all the time uh, my mum's still living in hong kong uh, we live in the new territories which is a bit more um spacious but only just if you were to go into kowloon it's like living on top of everybody so yes. you know 300 square foot okay i'll give you an idea 300 square foot which is basically our studio where Usad is next door and the back room okay and that's it that is spacious wow in hong kong terms so everything's relative correct um i, I think what we can conclude really regarding this uh, in in terms of fostering okay and being a fostering pe- or a foster parent i mean islam teaches that children are a blessing and their proper rearing is a means of gaining allah's pl- pleasure it's no wonder that wherever there's a muslim gathering you will always see children with their parents uh, so you know fostering in conclusion, is a noble and rewarding journey that aligns with the principles of compassion and care, which is emphasized in Islam. It is a way to fulfill the Islamic duty of providing for those in need and practicing mercy towards vulnerable children. Throughout the history of Islam, fostering and caring for orphaned and abandoned children has been highly regarded as an act of charity and righteousness, taqwa. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, himself was an orphan and emphasized the value of treating orphans with kindness and love. May Allah bless and reward those who embark on the journey of fostering, enabling them to make a positive difference in the lives of the children they care for and granting them abundant blessings in this life and the hereafter. Any words to add on to that? Yes, Sarge? you know, as as as, Sarge, as I mentioned, you know, it's a commendable job mm-hmm. which these members do, looking out um, for the foster um, foster children, which mm-hmm. they, which which they welcome to their houses. I I salute them, I respect them, and thank you so much for doing such a great job. Hopefully, more members will mm-hmm. be able to join that force and be able to look out for these yeah. vulnerable children. Yeah, reverse this trend of 12% of carers going out of uh, the market. But be 12% so in. Yeah, in, yes. So with that, we're going to come to the end of the show today. A big thanks to our producers, uh, Aisha Malik, uh, Farah Mirza, uh, our tech for the day and the whole day today, apparently. He's whining, Asad. <laughs> and uh, also my co-host, Saad Ahmed, uh, this is Talib Mad. This is Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Uh, please stay tuned for the six o'clock news and tune in again uh, tomorrow for Tuesday's edition of the Drive Time Show from 4 p.m. onwards.